Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the stunning decision by the BC Supreme Court to overturn provincial restrictions on public drug use. Now remember, possession of these drugs is now legal in British Columbia, 2.5 grams. That is the legal possession limit. Fentanyl, cocaine, heroin, where can you consume these drugs? The top, the BC Supreme Court saying people should be allowed to consume these drugs in public. Let's discuss it now with my guest, John Rustad, leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia. Very pleased to welcome him back. Thanks for coming in, John. Well, let me turn. Let me turn your microphone on here. Well, that would be good. Uh, there, there, it works yeah. better that way. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. And, All right. uh, and happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year to you too. So, thank you very much for coming in. So, tell me your your reaction when you heard that the BC Supreme Court had overturned these restrictions on public drug use. What went through your mind there? Did that surprise you? I, I mean, I was disappointed uh, to mm-hmm. see that. I mean, my perspective, and I voted against this piece of legislation last fall because I don't think it goes far enough. Uh, I don't think it's right that somebody should be able to walk down a street smoking a crack pipe. You can't walk down the street drinking a beer. Why would you be allowed to walk down the street doing hard drugs? And so I found these uh, the the bill to be uh, to not go far enough. But having said that, now to see the Supreme Court coming out and saying, "Okay, no, it's okay. You can go ahead and use drugs in parks and everything else." I just think that is completely wrong. As a government, we should be doing what we can to protect our children, to protect our society, and to have a safe, civil, and orderly society. And this court decision goes directly against that. Yeah, and it's interesting, like the comparator with uh, alcohol. Like if you did, if you did walk down uh, Granville Street or something, drinking a beer today, I mean, would you get arrested? You'd probably, I, I, you'd probably have a cop stop. I, I, you, right? I don't think they would arrest me, but if a cop saw it, he probably would come over and yeah. seize it and dump it out, and, sure. and, and rightfully so. Yeah, uh, but they're not even allowed to do that. You yeah. know, if somebody's if somebody's doing drugs walking down the street, they're not even allowed to take it away. Right. I mean, it's it's crazy. They it, it seems to have gone completely sideways in terms of what our values are as a, as a society. Right. And some people criticize that the restrictions that were brought in, as you just pointed out, didn't go far enough in the first place. Right. So if you just remind the listeners, it was you were not allowed to use these drugs on a beach, um, uh, uh, at a playground. You had to be with at least 15 meters away from a playground or a kiddie pool, right? If you were 16 meters away, you could smoke crack near a kiddie pool. Well, I think Correct? It's, uh, I think it's kind of crazy that we'd be expecting our police to bring in a tape measure with them uh, yeah. to determine you know, whether or not uh, thing. Or, or are we going to be marking you know, lines on the ground somewhere to say this is okay to, to, to do hard drugs here but not over here? I mean, uh, I just think it's – the point, I think, in society is – you know, what are we doing with our society? Are we protecting the people in general? Are we creating a safe, civil environment? Or are we just allowing it to be a free-for-all? Okay, I'm looking at the, the judgment here from the Chief Justice of the B.C. Supreme Court. And he writes that the consumption, public consumption and consuming drugs, reading directly from the court ruling, public consumption and consuming drugs in the company of others is oftentimes the safest, healthiest, and or only available option for an individual, given the dire lack of supervised consumption services. In other words, it's safer for people to use these drugs in public in case they overdose, right? And if you if you overdose alone, you're more likely to die, correct? 
you know, that, so this is a big issue, but I would also say that we've now had safe supply and decriminalization. We've had these policies in place for many, many years. And what's happened? The situation yeah. has gotten worse. Yeah. The number of people are dying is worse. We actually are creating an environment where we're saying there are safe drugs out there. You can go ahead and use them. It's creating a new level of addicts. We have in our schools and high schools, we've got uh, kids now that are addicted to these so-called safe supply because they're finding our way in there. I mean, we're creating this next generation of addicts. We actually should be focused on having recovery, individual recovery plans for people, doctor-prescribed treatments, voluntary, involuntary. We need a different approach to deal with drugs. Well, where is the evidence that the Safe Supply Program is creating new addicts? Because I've talked I've, I've done heartbreaking interviews with parents who've lost their kids to drug addiction who actually support the Safe Supply, yeah. and they believe that if their kid, the reason their kids are their kid is dead, is because they took. Uh, street, an illegal street drug, typically fentanyl, and that's what they died from. If they had been on a safe supply, you know, a government-regulated, measured, lab-tested lab drug like Dilaudid, which is the typical safe supply drug, that their, their child would be alive. You don't, so I, you don't believe that? One of the people who's running for us in the North Island uh, as a doctor spent 25 years specializing in treating uh, people with addictions. And she had a patient who was a high school student who is addicted to safe supply from high school. These drugs are making their way into high school. And, and so she asked <clears throat> she asked the patient, um, you know, do you know anybody else in your high school? And he said, I know at least 30 others that are addicted to this safe supply. And so, yes, there are, there are tragic cases out there. There's no question, right? And, and my heart goes out to those parents, right? No parent should ever have to, to bury their child, right? I mean, it yeah, just, it's just tragic. But at the same time, what are we doing when you've got these supplies that are going into schools and we're telling them they're safe? They're yeah. not safe. They're addictive. They're highly addictive and damaging substances. They're not safe. We should not be calling them that. Okay, you mentioned that when the provincial government brought in these restrictions on public drug use, you felt that it did not go far enough. You voted against it. Interestingly, the, the, the BC Green Party, you and I were discussing off here, voted in favor of it because they wanted... What did they want? They, or they, they voted against it because... They both voted against it, but they thought it didn't go far enough. Yeah, they felt that right. They wanted wide open public drug use everywhere. Be able to use drug use everywhere. And, use drugs and everywhere. Our perspective is it didn't go far enough. You yeah. shouldn't be able to be using you know drugs in public. Yeah, just like you're not allowed to. So take you so you believe there should be a total ban on public drug consumption. And, and it's also one of the reasons why when this court case came out with the decision, I said we should actually look at using the notwithstanding clause. Now I'm and to say no, this is wrong. The courts have gone too far on this. We need as government to be able to protect the people, to be able to create a civil and just society. And if the courts are not are not agreeing and going in a different direction, that's what the notwithstanding clause was designed to be able to do. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that. So the notwithstanding clause, this was a constitutional ruling here by the B.C. Supreme Court. I think it was Section 7 of the Charter, uh, which guarantees life, liberty, security, the person in Canada. Right. So they said that, that uh, tell, telling someone you can't do drugs in public was a threat to their life, liberty, and security. Right, if they're if they're addicted to drugs, so you're saying that the provincial government should use the notwithstanding clause in the constitution, what, to overrule this this court ruling? Yes, correct. Okay, that's correct. Yeah. And even though I I don't agree with the with the law that was passed last fall, it was supported by the United Party and the NDP Party, which said you know you can't do it in parks, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I agree, you shouldn't, but you shouldn't be able to do them anywhere. Is is my perspective, which is why I voted against this bill. Um, that should that will of the people should be able to be implemented. We need to be able to keep children safe. We need to be able to keep our playground safe. We should, should be able to be supporting families. And if a court is saying that 
the rights of somebody who is addicted should supersede the rights of a family and of children, that's where I have a problem. Yeah. Now, the harm reduction measures that have been introduced by the government, I agree with you. It doesn't seem to be working, especially when we see the, the, the death rate going up. It's going in the wrong direction. So do you therefore believe that what should be the answer to this crisis? Do you think there should be, what, more treatment? To get people off these drugs or stop them from starting them in the the first place. I mean, you have to be able to go after the source of where these drugs are going after. There's a a range of things that need to be done. But really what needs – when you look at the problem we have, we do not have anywhere close to as much treatment as needed. We need to be looking at a full range. We should be working with uh, with addicts and giving them an individual recovery program, whether that is – whether that's doctor-prescribed treatments, whether that is voluntary uh, treatment. In some cases, we may have to have involuntary treatment. Uh, available for for people, um, and quite frankly, we should also be looking at long term care and treatment for people for people that it's super expensive. Well, what you're talking about. So you're saying what a, B, at- a BC Conservative Party government here would s- launch a massive spending program on drug treatment. We would need to we would need to dramatically improve it. Yes. Now you're not going to be able to do it overnight. It's something you're going to have to develop over over time, right? As as you as you build this whole thing out. But you know <clears throat> when I when I look at at what we're doing today. What we are doing is saying it's okay to use drugs. It's okay to be that, and we'll try to catch you if you happen to fall, right? If you happen to, if you happen to um, OD, we're going to try to catch you and, and and help you survive. What we need to be doing is saying we want to have a path for you to be able to live a healthy, you know, fulfilled life. Yeah. How do we help you get on that path? How do we work with you to get you through this issue and to get you off of that? Now. There's going to be people that are still going to use. We need to be able to have safe places for people to use, right? There's there's other issues. There's mental health issues. There's housing issues. There's other, so you're not you're not against the supervised injection site then? Um, so if if that is what the doctors would prescribe for people as part of a path to recovery, yeah. then I wouldn't I wouldn't be opposed to that. But it has okay. to be as part of a path to recovery. I don't think we should just be continually supporting you know the addiction. Okay. Uh, we're talking about this court ruling on public drug use in British Columbia. My guest is John Rustad, leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia. Uh, I've got open phone lines right now. If you phone now, you will get through. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. What did you think of the government's response to this court ruling? Did it just seem like they seemed a little... I mean, I think I saw Farnworth said he was disappointed in it or he was concerned... And they're studying the ruling. Exactly. They're looking at it and, they're, and yeah. they're looking at it from a perspective of, is there something they could change in the legislation? It, you know, what does they need to do to tighten it up? Um, you know, how was this process going? Are they just going to have it carry on as what's been going on and then go see what happens with a, with a charter challenge down the road? Uh, like yeah. I say, I think it's a very weak response from the NDP government. Uh, they certainly don't have any courage or their conviction in terms of what should be happening to protect people in this province. What are you hearing from police? Because there are stories today that police chiefs don't like this court ruling either. Well, it's it's a big issue, and I think you know police you know have they want to do the best they can for people as well. And you know, one of the stories I heard, particularly around decriminalization, when I was talking to police, is this actually takes the tool away from police. You've got a dealer, and you've got people coming and going from a dealer's place. They no longer can stop that dealer or stop that uh, somebody co- that is leaving and seize their drugs and use it as evidence to go after the dealer. Dealer, because dealing is still illegal. Dealing is still like illegal. Like possession, yes. you're allowed to possess the drugs, two point five grams, but you cannot deal the drugs. It, exactly. So we've yeah. actually taken a tool away from police to be able to go after these dealers of these drugs. It's yeah. you know, it, it's not. 
you know, you look at it and you think, okay, you're trying to solve a social issue, but you've actually taken tools away from solving a, a much greater social issue. Yeah, yeah. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Chris in Penticton. Hi, Chris, go ahead. Hi, Mike. Love your program. John, you've you got to get your uh, your uh, platform out there. Uh, we got to know what you're going to do for us because uh, we need help in this problem. But get back to conversation. Um, I really am concerned that we're going to see a real uptake in violence because now we're making them feel more entitled, and it will lead to violence. There are going to be people hurt. Not well, there's people the getting hurt. There's people getting hurt now. I mean, we do have drug drug wars going on. Your thoughts? Yeah, there's no question. Uh, there are people getting hurt. There's things that that steps that need to be done. But you know, what Chris asked about us wanting to get our platform out there, and we are going to be start putting things out. Put a few things out there last fall. We're going to be putting more things out as we go as we get closer to the election. We want to save some things, of course, uh, for building that momentum going into the election. But uh, we will have a, a full platform for people to be able to look at. Okay, on that point, in just the one minute we have left, we are in an election year now. And I talked on the show yesterday about the potential for, is there any potential for any kind of a merger between your party and BC United, the former BC Liberal Party? I know you have not ruled that out. Is this possible? So we're always open to to conversations. Uh, We haven't received any sort of uh, um, indication from from the other party that they are interested in doing anything. And that's fine, right? I mean, I, I get it. There's there's differing views. I mean, but you are interested in doing I'm, something, are you? I'm interested in doing what what is right for the people in British Columbia, and so if, as long as they, you know having these conversations is not going to compromise the values that we stand for and the principles that we want to bring forward uh, as the Conservative Party of BC. I mean, it's not about being conservative or liberal or NDP or green. It's just about standing for what's right and being straight up with people. And so we're interested in having those conversations with individuals or, or groups. Would you be willing to stand aside as the leader and submit to a new leadership contest for a new a merged party if well, it I, came to that? So yeah, 30 seconds. The big challenge that we have is there's going to be an election in 2024. It's going to schedule in, in October, which is nine months. We will not have a time to do something like that. We just don't. And that's just the reality we're facing. So we're going to be prepared. We're going to make sure we have 93 candidates in place. We've got very strong candidates. We're going to have a very strong platform. And I'm really looking forward to 2024. Let's talk about small businesses now facing a ticking clock here to repay COVID loans. You remember some of all those programs the federal government brought out during the pandemic? The SIBA loan program was a big one. That was the Canada Emergency Business Account Loan that would help small businesses cover costs to get through the pandemic. A lot of them were shut down. Of course, restaurants faced restrictions. And a lot of those small businesses, restaurants, took out those loans. You could take out a loan up to $60,000. Well, now the clock ticking here toward the deadline to repay these loans or face uh, interest charges. Have a listen to restaurant owner here, Bill Pratt. He owns a... Uh, a chain of restaurants, he says, look, he may have to close some of them down here because of this loan payback deadline. Have a listen. We needed SIBA at the time to get us through, you know, the dark days of COVID. I had nine SIBA loans. Everything else is adding to our bottom line. The reality is that I will be closing a couple facilities in order to save the entire company. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Dan Kelly. Dan is the president, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They do an awesome job there representing the interests of small business in Canada. Dan, thanks for coming on. Good to be with you. 
Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Can you let's talk about this SIBA loan program first here? It was sixty thousand was the maximum you could get, correct? It was, yeah. The first yeah. round was forty thousand. It was expanded to a sixty thousand dollar total. The big feature, of course, is if you repaid the loan by its deadline, there was a forgivable portion that you got to keep, and and that deadline is for most SIBA loan holders is January eighteenth. If you repay forty thousand dollars by then then the $20,000 of the loan is forgiven. So that, that certainly is helpful for those businesses that, that will be able to do that. Right, okay, so two weeks away here for the deadline uh, to do that. So that would be a, a significant benefit, right, for small businesses that got these loans. I mean, if you could, if you only have to, if you got 60000 you only have to pay back 40000 man, that, that's a pretty good deal. But you have to do it by... January 18th, right? What happens if you don't pay back the, the 40 of the loan by January 18th? Yeah, that's that's the rub. If uh, yeah. if your business, like uh, like the uh, guest you just played, if you don't have the $40,000 to repay the loan, uh, then you have to repay the entire $60,000 immediately afterwards. Now, the positive right. is that you will have an additional three years to, 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 to push down that 60 grand over time you'll pay 5% interest along the way. Uh, But if you're, you know, January 18th, your debt is $40,000. January 19th, your debt becomes $60,000. And what I worry about is that there's at least a third of businesses in Canada. There are 900,000 businesses that took out the SIBA loan. And at least a third of them are reporting they don't have the money to repay the $40,000 by January 18th. And that's the group that uh, right now is, is panicking. Wow. Okay. So 900,000 businesses took out these loans and a third don't have the money to pay back here by January 18th. So that what was so 300, so we're talking 300 or do, do, 300, do the math for me here. 300,000. Yeah. Their, their debt, their debt burden go up. Yeah. And you know, your listeners need to know that, uh, you know, just because streets are busy does not mean that it's back to normal for, for most small and medium sized companies across the country. You know, there were all those economists predicting that as we came out of the pandemic, we'd have these booming economic times and and, uh, everything would be fantastic. Well, that sure hasn't happened for small businesses. And of course, consumers know this because they're stretched to the backs as well. Businesses have not seen their sales recover. In fact, half of small businesses in Canada are reporting that their sales remain below 2019 levels. So you're not making the money you used to make. Your costs are way higher than they used to be. You now have the legacy of COVID debt that is on your books about to be bigger. And, and I worry how many business owners are going to make the decision to just toss in the, the towel here and say, forget it, I can't do this anymore. Speaking of Dan Kelly, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, the clock ticking here for the deadline on these COVID loans. All right, let's listen to another business owner here. This is Cliff Lear. He's the owner of... Paul Epi Bakery in Victoria. He was a guest here on an earlier show talking about these loans that he's facing and the difficulty he's going through with his restaurant. Let's listen. Coming out of COVID, we got a lot more debts, picked up a lot of debt through COVID, which we had to take to kind of get through it. And now it's time to pay it back. Business has always been swim margins. It's a tough business to be in. And now it's really sad up against uh, anybody in this business can, can tell you now it's pretty tough. Yeah, I mean, running a restaurant or a bakery, the profit margins are narrow, and it's a difficult business to be in. A lot of them go under. Dan, could could some businesses actually go out of business here because of this uh, these loans? 
There's no question. In fact, uh, an earlier report we did showed that there could be a quarter of a million businesses that, that fail as a result of the debt that they are carrying. Now, to be clear, small businesses fail all the time. I mean, this isn't abnormal. You've seen this in your own neighborhood. There are businesses, you know, the same restaurant location has had five restaurants in the last two years. So that's a normal, accepted part of business. What's different about this is that many businesses are failing not because they made bad business decisions or the model didn't work. They're failing because they've, they've swallowed a ton of debt that they needed to yeah. take on to, because of government restrictions. That's not their fault. And yet we are now imposing these, uh, this burden on these same businesses. What, I, what we've been asking for, begging the government to do, is to give businesses a bit more time. Some of these businesses have viable business mo- Many of these businesses have viable business models. If they could get this debt off, or at least government would be a bit more patient to, to repay this debt over a bit more time, more of these firms would make it. That means more of the jobs would be protected, more of the business owners and their families would not see their life's work disappear. Uh, and that's what we're calling on Ottawa to do. Uh, unfortunately, though, I am at the point where, after having spoken to very senior officials for for months, uh, there is no last-minute reprieve coming uh, before January 18th. So this is the time where business owners, uh, any of that are that are listening, they should be trying to repay their CBA loan if they possibly can, or going to their bank to take out another loan in order to repay the CBA loan if they qualify. Yeah, I was just wondering about that. Would it make sense financially to if you don't have the the 40,000 to pay back well go to the bank borrow it and and pay it back that way because then you get to yeah. still write off the extra 20 right so i mean it'd be worth it to go to the bank and get another loan wouldn't it in most cases yes uh because yeah. if you don't repay it uh by january 18th you your debt becomes 60,000 60, so you have right. another 20 grand to pay back but you have yeah. it at a 5% interest in 3 years if you pay if you take out a loan now you might take the bank might charge you 10, 12, 15 percent uh, for the courtesy of that loan, but you'll get the 20,000 written off. And, and, and in most cases, the business will be better off with a repayment plan through their bank. Right. Yeah. So I think that's something that businesses should certainly consider, of course. But you're, you're lobbying, you've been lobbying very hard here to get another extension on these loans. And you just mentioned that you're not feeling optimistic at all that there will no. be some sort of last-minute reprieve. Why Why do you say that? Have you been told privately that there's no extension coming? Oh, yeah. I've, okay. <laughs> well, the government's been saying that uh, for a while, uh, but I had a conversation uh, with uh, one of the most senior people uh, in government uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, and uh, from that I concluded that there is no change coming at the, at the 11th hour. This is, this is going to happen. These loans are going to come due. Now, there are options past January 18th. There is a special provision. If you've applied for a loan before January 18th, the government will give you until March 28th to get that loan in place, and you'll still get to keep the forgivable portion. All of this is explained in detail on my website, cfib.ca. There's details of each category of businesses and what they should do. Uh, with some advice from me uh, to these businesses that uh, that are facing what is a really, really difficult question right now. 
Yeah, well, that's really important to know for any business owners who are listening right now who have one of these SIBA loans, and there are certainly a lot of them out there. Yeah, you should make sure you understand completely the, the liabilities you're looking at here and what options you have. Dan Kelly is my guest, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Business, you've been lobbying for another extension on the repayment deadline. What kind of, how long of an extension did you want? Yeah, so we've asked the government to give businesses an additional year to the end of 2024 to repay these uh, to repay the 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 non-forgivable portion that forty thousand dollars while still keeping the twenty thousand dollar forgivable chunk. Um, but uh, but no, as I said, that that's unlikely to happen. There are some, of course, a lot of other files. On January first, Canada pension plan premiums went up. January first, employment insurance premiums went up. Uh, we've got April 1st uh, increases in carbon taxes, liquor taxes. So there are a whole bunch of other priority items for small businesses as we move into 2024. And gosh, the, you know, the government's not making it easy for anybody. Okay, what would you say, Dan, to people who would say, I don't really have a lot of sympathy here? Now, I'm already getting some emails from listeners along this line saying, well, hang on a of second course. here. These small businesses here, yeah, I know it's tough. For a lot of people in this economy, it's it's tough for it's tough for everybody, and you're effectively asking taxpayers to subsidize the cost of these loans and and to bail these businesses out at least in the short term. Why should Canadian taxpayers help these businesses out? Hasn't there already been an extension on, on the repayment? Yes. By the way, look, yeah, I'm I'm sympathetic to that that view. Uh, yeah, business subsidizing businesses is a stupid idea. Uh, subsidizing businesses, giving them grants and uh, incentives generally does not work. What, what businesses need is lower taxes to be able to, to plow their money into the things that make sense. And then if the business fails, well, that's, their, that's, that's, that's the <laughs> unfortunate part of entrepreneurship. However, yeah. this is different. These businesses were closed not because they were doing bad things. They were closed to protect society. A third of, we, we estimate, uh, based on all the numbers we've seen, that of the losses that businesses occurred over the two years of on and off COVID restrictions, most businesses uh, ended up paying, two, uh, took on two-thirds of that cost before. So even if they used all of the provincial and federal support programs, including SEBA, that covered about a third of their losses. Two-thirds of their losses were on their books. And that's the reason why we are pushing for some help. Yes, it was extended. It was supposed to, these were supposed to, these loans were supposed to be due at the end of 2022. It was pushed to the end of 2023 and then given an extra 18 days to January 18th. But, but I got to tell you, when these loans were first take, taken out, business owners were told that the restrictions would be two weeks to flatten the curve or two months perhaps to get yeah. through the COVID period. And we had, Canada had the longest COVID restrictions of any country in the entire world. We had longer lockdowns in, in Canada than any other jurisdiction in the entire world. Uh, as a result, the damage is, has been huge on entrepreneurs. They lost their ability to earn an income from the marketplace. And that's why right. this is different. Dan, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Very good. Well, well any time at all. All right, here we go now with CEO salaries in Canada. Now, this is the annual list of the top paid executives in the country. The new list is just out. Number one on the list, J. Patrick Doyle, executive chairman.
Restaurant Brands International. They own Tim Hortons, Burger King, and Popeye's Chicken. $151 million paid last year. Highest paid executive in the country. That's a whopper of a big salary there. He is the Burger King of Canada. Number two on the list, Matthew Proud. He is the CEO of a, a corporate software company called Die and Durham Limited. He made just a shade under a hundred million, so ninety nine point like seven million last year, and what just almost made the hundred million club. Number two on the list, also on this list, supermarket tycoon Galen Weston, owner of Loblaws. Raking it in at the supermarket checkout. Air Canada CEO Michael Russo. He made $12 million last year. He is on the list this year. Also in the news this week, Air Canada dead last in North American on-flight times. On-time flights, that is. The CEO, though, flying high. $12 million. Now, think about this now. We always get these lists every single year. And it's always kind of an eye-popping list to go through. Is it really a, a big deal for people? Like, do people look at this and just get so angry that these big corporate big shots are making such big salaries? Or is that just the way the world goes around? I mean, if you if you climb that slippery pole to the top of the corporate ladder, you're supposed to make the big bucks, aren't you? Isn't that the way it works forever? Got Margareta Dovgal standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Anne Gaviola. Top CEOs make more than $7,100 an hour. It takes a little more than eight hours for them to make $60,600, the average annual pay. That's nearly 250 times what the average rank-and-file worker makes. The pay gap between everyday people and CEOs has continued to widen since the 80s. Yeah, this is one of the things that people are looking at. It's the pay gap between the highest paid and the lowest paid, which appears to continue to widen year over year. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Margareta Dovgal. Margareta is an economic policy analyst and commentator. She's based in Vancouver. She studied public administration, University College London. She also works as managing director at the Resource Works Society. Margareta, it's nice to have you on again. Thanks for coming on. As always, great to be here. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. Thanks for doing it. So when we take a look down this list, we see these eye-popping salaries for these big CEOs of Canadian corporations. This is a list that every year this gets a lot of attention. It, does anything here surprise you? It, it seems like the salaries are going up, up, up at the very top, maybe at a faster pace than people are making a lower on the scale. What do you think? I'm not surprised that people are talking about this. You know, fundamentally, it's about fairness. It's uh, about our inherent sense of justice. And look, I, I grew up below the poverty line. My parents came from Eastern Europe. Uh, their parents' generation was hungry. They lived through war and food insecurity. And, you know, that's still true in many places around the world. That's true for a lot of Canadians and, and their work, where their families came from. Um, and my folks were very grateful to arrive in this country, you know, share in this abundance. And as an extension of that, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, but the fact of life is that things are scarce. And 
And uh, having grown up below the poverty line, I understand this sense of injustice or lack of fairness because you want more, you want better, you want security. And for me, an important part of growing up was realizing, frankly, that the world owes you nothing. And when we fight together for survival, that's a choice. Uh, you know, sharing resources, sharing well-being, sharing opportunity, that's a choice we make as a society. And I mean, what we're talking about is taxation. And I think there's a, a lot of things to discuss in that. But, you know, it's, it's not just about what do you need and what do you want? It's about fundamentally what is fair to expect from others around you. Okay, I think that's a really interesting thought. And let's have a listen to David McDonald here briefly. He is the chief economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. This is the kind of a left-leaning think tank that puts out this report every single year. And here he is commenting on CEO salaries. Now, every time we talk about this, of course, if you talk to people in the business world, we'll say, look, you know, it is what it is. There is major competition for these highly skilled and effective corporate leaders. And yeah, of course, they get paid big bucks because it's a competitive market. If if one corporation doesn't pay them a big the big salary, someone else will have a listen to what he says here. Then I'll get your thoughts. CEOs argue that they're in a hockey draft and that they all get in a big room and all the companies get in a big room and they have to bid for the top CEOs. And if they don't get them, then their company's going to tank. Okay, so he se- he seems very dubious there in his, in his tone that maybe he thinks that there this is more of an old boys club and and by the way it is vastly dominated by men here this top one hundred list I think there are three women on this list well that's a small number um, what do you think of that Margareta like when he says he doesn't seem convinced that this is about paying for a skill set but what do you think? Well, if, if you want to go live in a country where the most talented, uh, most willing to take risk people uh, who've, you know, either inherited wealth or earned it through hard work or gotten it through generations of hard work, I uh, uh, don't want to uh, put it out at risk and create economic opportunities. You can do that. There's lots of countries in the world uh, where economic opportunities are scarce. Uh, things are very distributive because there's not a lot to distribute. Uh, I don't want to live in that country personally. And I, I think in a general sense, capitalism is in a perfect system. System, but as far as everyone's been able to tell, uh, it's probably the best system we've developed. Uh, it tries to distribute benefits and fundamentally preserves freedom and choice. Um, so creating opportunities for people to participate in it, to be able to take those risks, to build skills that are valuable, whether it's you know running a massive corporation or you know supporting students and learners or being a nurse or whatever it is you want to offer the world in exchange for money, being able to do that, I think, should be something everyone is helping you do in a meaningful way, uh, but taking away from those that have earned it, which is, I think, ultimately what um, folks who like to focus on this issue are uh, leaning towards. I don't think that's a fair or reasonable uh, suggestion to make. And if it comes from a place of envy, that's not good public policy, honestly. Okay, let's listen to another critic here and get your thoughts. Now, this is Jim Stanford. He's an economist, Center for Future Work. He's been a past guest here on the show. And again, very critical of these sky-high CEO salaries. He thinks they're too high. He thinks the gap between rich and poor is too wide. Let's listen. Whether times are good or times are bad for the economy, and whether a company is doing well or doing poorly, it seems the CEO's salary just goes up and up. Yeah, I mean, this is something that people have commented on, especially when you see a guy like Galen Weston on this list, grocery store tycoon, the head of uh, the Loblaws chain there. And when you there's been so much focus in the past year, Margareta, on food prices and how expensive it is. I mean, everyone has experienced this sticker shock when they go to the grocery store. 
is it fair that the guy at the top is, is bagging like 11 million bucks a year? Your thoughts? Is it fair? No. Is it the <laughs> fault of an economic system? I, that, that's a great question to ask. I, I think in a just my, my values here, Mike, um, you know, we, we live in a democracy. Uh, we get to pick um, what is fair, who should pay. But the first question we should ask is what are society's needs? Are those needs being taken care of? And you're completely right. If someone can't afford groceries, they can't afford the basics of life, they're struggling to find a home to live in that they can afford. That's a big problem as Canadians. We need to care about that. And we need to devote public and private resources to fixing that. Um, but the way we do that is by creating wealth. We create economic activity so we can invest in the kinds of things that we all agree are important. Um, and we already get criticized for, you know, failing to attract really, really talented people, a lot of entrepreneurs, high-skilled professionals, a lot of friends that I have who have, you know, fundamentally wonderful things to offer the world, they're going to other places because of exactly what you mentioned earlier, that uh, it is about compensation, it is about attracting that talent, and it is like a hockey draft. So um, we should be focused on assessing those needs and meeting them. Um, but the knee-jerk solution to, you know, see, see that inequality and say that's something we can just snap our fingers and address without having huge, huge repercussions down the line. I don't think that's a reasonable approach to the matter. And I think everyone just, you know, needs to accept the reality of the situation that we're not going to be able to get to perfect. But what we can get to is as fair and as balanced and um, as opportunity rich of a policy environment that we can. And I think that's really the objective here. Okay. On that precise point, then, on the what should be done about this, if anything, like the groups that put out these reports, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, or we talk about the federal NDP. I've had Jugmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader on the show here in the last year, saying you've got to bring the hammer down on these corporations, tax them. You've got to increase the taxes at the for the highest income earners. So the people are making the most, the people at the very top, they should be paying more. You should increase their taxes. You should put an excess wealth tax on these highly profitable corporations. Margareta, what do you think of that argument? Yeah, you, you absolutely can always extract more, but there's a price to pay for that. Um, it, it's not an internal spigot. It's not Scrooge McDuck, you know, uh, leaping into a pool of money. Uh, it's economic activity that's you know, current in the system. Those people have money and they make money because they're involved in activities that generate lots of money. If we want those activities to take place in Canada, we want companies from around the world and wealthy people from around the world to invest and create jobs and allow the rest of us to have a, you know, a fair slice of that pie, then we need to set conditions that allow for that investment to take place. Uh, if, if we take a knee-jerk reaction response, like, you're right, many political parties, uh, many policy commentators like to push to, uh, we're actually driving away the thing that would make our collective quality of life better. And I think that's bad news for everyone. So if your objective is to overcome poverty, alleviate hardship, to support families and those who are struggling, to ensure that we have good public resources, we have uh, social services, we have the, all the things that make life in Canada as good as it is, we need to create the wealth base and keep growing that wealth mm. base year over year to enable that investment to take place. And taxing the heck out of someone, I don't think is a solution here at all. Margareta, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts and analysis. I appreciate it. Thank you. All the best.
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.